So we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 3 under the heading, How to Be a Godly Leader. I don't know if you know this or not, but everyone in here is supposed to be a leader of some kind. You're supposed to be a leader. You're supposed to be an example to the world in which we live of what it looks like to be a man or to be a woman of God. So we're going to look at this. We'll pick up four attributes that we need in order to be a godly leader. Become a godly leader. Keep your connection to God fresh. To become a godly leader, keep your connection to God fresh. David's in the midst of this uh, situation with Saul dead and Jonathan dead, and so he's asking God for directions. He said, God, I need some counsel. He's learned his lesson from his previous experiences. He is not going to move unless God gives him the permission to move. And there's an important lesson for us to learn there. It's an important lesson for me to learn as pastor. We should never move on something until we know that God is leading us in that direction, until God affirms us that we can move forward. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go to one, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? Now, even though Saul and Jonathan were dead, and David had many friends, and he had his many contacts, and he is to be the next king, David does not run ahead of God. So, so, so he, he wants to learn. He's learned his lesson. So he seeks guidance from God first. So what does God tell him? He says, go up. He says, go up. But David is not quite sure. So he wants a little bit more detail. So, so he says, you know, where shall I go? And so that God tells him, go up to Hebron. Go to Hebron. Now, Hebron's an important city in, in, the, in the Bible, but it's also significant even today. Hebron is the place where all the patriarchs are buried. Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, they are all buried, and their wives are buried at the cave of Mechpelah, which is right there at the uh, city of Hebron. But today, there's a, mos- there's a mosque on top of the cave of Mechlapah. So, so this is an important area geographically. It has significance. So verse 3 says that David and his people move in to the town of Hebron and, and the surrounding villages. By now, there's a thousand people that are following David. That They have been committed. They have been loyal. They have been faithful to David. And so they move into the towns and to the city of Hebron itself. Verse 4, it says that the people of Judah anoint David as the king over Judah. This is uh, an affirmation of God's call upon David's life. David is being affirmed. You know, David was anointed previously in 1 first, in Samuel chapter 16. He was anointed by Samuel to be the king over the people of Israel. Here, he's just being affirmed by the people of Judah. Now, there's no power that goes out and, and, and affirms them. There's just no special uh, aura that comes over David during this situation. It's simply an encouragement that he was in the will of God. And so he receives a fresh touch from God, a fresh touch for the task that God is giving him. You know, we need to always keep our connection to God with fresh, always. So many believers today that they embark on the mission or the ministry that God has given them, but, but they don't get that fresh power. They don't get that fresh touch from God for that new mission, that new task that, that God has given to them. I remember in one church in which I served, 
you know, I'd never been a part of anything like that, but they actually had an installation of the pastor to the position. They installed me as the pastor of the church, and with that, there was a laying on of hands and an anointing in their, in their mind, an anointing for the fresh task. That, that's what was, is happening in, in this situation. But many of us, we don't do that. We just keep on going about it. But if we don't keep our, 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 our connection to God fresh, we may not be as vibrant as we need. David got a fresh touch from God. God sent him to Hebron to be anointed by the people of Judah. Why? Because God, David needed a fresh touch from God. He needed a fresh anointing from God. And the same is true for us. The, the best definition I've heard of this is, is a fresh touch for a fresh task. A fresh touch for a fresh task. Whenever God has given you so a task to do, you are to seek a new anointing. Seek His power in a new and a fresh way. Keep that connection to God vibrant. Keep that connection to God alive. Because if you do not, you will grow stale and you will grow stagnant. And you just will not have the vibrancy that you need. So how do you do it? How do you keep that connection to God fresh? Well, you do it through the study of God's Word. You do it through prayer. You do it by being around people that will encourage you. You do it through worship. You do it through such things as that. And you make sure you're in the place where God can anoint you, where God can put his fresh touch upon you. You see, David was sent to Hebron, but he had not been sent to Hebron. If he had not went there, if he had not been obedient to God's will, he wouldn't have received the fresh touch for the fresh task. So you've got to be in the place where God wants you to be. So to become a godly leader, keep your connection to God fresh. To become a godly leader, express gratitude to others. Let me give you the background of this. After Saul committed suicide, rather than being killed by the Philistines, the Philistine army found the body of Saul and the body of his sons, and they took them and they cut off their heads and they hung their bodies on a wall in one of the Philistine cities. The people of Jabesh Gilead heard about it, and so in, in a covert operation under the, under the darkness, they went and they retrieved the bodies of Saul and his two boys. And they burned the bones, they, they burned, the, burned the bodies, and they took the bones, and they buried them in the city of Jabesh-Gilead. This is the story. David hears about this in chapter uh, 2, verses 4 through 7. David's told of this event. And David expresses gratitude to the men of Jabesh-Gilead for what they had accomplished. You know, it's important for a leader to know how to do that. Look at what David says in verses 5 through six. The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. It's, that's pretty wise for a leader to do. Learn to express gratitude. I remember when I served as director of pastoral care and volunteer services at, at a hospital. One of the things that we were taught as managers of departments is to look at everybody in the hospital. And if we see somebody in the hospital going beyond the call of duty, going above and beyond what is required, we are to send, write them a personal thank you note and mail it to their home. We wouldn't give it to them at the office. We would mail it to them at their home because people like to get mail at their house. 
And in that, we would acknowledge him, thank you for going above and beyond. I think we used, called it wow, a winsome, over the top, and worth telling others is what we did. And, and, and the people got that, that little thank you note. It said that people are watching you, they're observing you. And so it created unity, it created camaraderie amongst the, the hospital staff to know that we were all in this together. It was a way that we acknowledged their work, acknowledged their, their contributions to what we're trying to do as a hospital. You see, a godly leader should notice the work of others. Yeah, I don't always do a good job at that. Um, you know, I, I, I could do better at that. You know, let me just pause for a moment, and I'm not going to single out anybody in, individually. But, you know, we had an important event yesterday in my life. Well, not my life, and why life my daughter's. My daughter was married, you know. Um, and uh, I could not have done that if I had not had the help of this church. You really stepped up and became my family at that time. Because I didn't get a lot of help from my, my family, because you know, I have a lot of girls, and they don't climb trees and stuff like that, not anymore. And if I had not had help from, you know, and I'll sing out about three people that worked with me outside, Ken Orr, Eugene Garner, and LaRouche. And y'all don't know LaRouche, but uh, you three guys, I don't think we could have got it done. And, and, and Garrett and Heath, uh, I acknowledge you. I know others were working in the kitchen and I know that, and I saw you, and I appreciate it. I don't always do as good a job. But can we just be honest? Most of us don't do a good job. We don't. So, so I feel like I'm in good company. Uh, you know, we, don't, we don't acknowledge those who are, do a good job, the people working behind the scenes. How many times we walked up to Marcy and said, hey, thanks for running the, the video. Hey, Heath, Garrett, thanks for running the soundboard. Hey, Don, thanks for vacuuming the floor. Amen. You know, hey, Lois, thanks for putting the little pencils in the, in the pews. Thanks for picking up the trash. How often do we do that? You see, when we begin to thank them, you know when we thank them? After they're gone. That's when we begin to realize how much they accomplished and how much they did for us. We need to do a better job of thanking people for what they do, for a job well done. David recognized what the men of Jabesh Gilead did, and he acknowledged them, and he thanked them. But David also was trying to create unity uh, amongst the people. You know, he's trying to consolidate his power. You know, he, he's becoming sharp at what he's trying to do. He said, he said, I'm trying to rally the Democrats, and I'm trying to rally the Republicans. Well, that's not what it says in the Scripture, Okay. Uh, uh, but but he, he's trying to rally the people. Notice what he says in, in verse 7. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. That's what David is, is inviting them to come into fellowship with him. He said, he said I've, I've, he's expressed his gratitude for them. He's encouraged them. And, and now he, he wants to include them in what is happening in the kingdom. He didn't do it uh, to, to get their praise. He said, I, I'm trying to, to bring you in to this. And we need to learn that. David was recognizing that there's something more going on here than he said, I need these people to be a part of what God is doing in the kingdom. In order to do that, he showed his forgiveness. Uh, he, showed, he showed his gratitude for those individuals. And then he's going to move on 
to show forgiveness, to become a godly leader, be able to forgive. In verse 8, we see that Abner has decided to set up a rival kingdom. You know, Abner was the captain of the guard for Saul. He was Saul's right-hand man. He was also Saul's uncle. So he is seeing an opportunity to create his own kingdom, to create his own ability. So he's going to establish a rival kingdom to David. As David is king in Judah, he's going to establish a kingdom in Israel, and he's going to be the ruler. But what he says, he's going to set up a vassal king. So he looks for somebody who's weak, somebody he can control, and he finds a son of Saul by the name of Ishbosheth. Don't you love that name? Ishbosheth. Uh, Ishbosheth Worley. How does that sound? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think he would ever. Forgive me. Ishbosheth. Now, it's interesting he chose uh, the son Ishbosheth because the name Ishbosheth means man of shame. How would you like to be king known as man of shame? Not a good way to start out your legacy to be king of Israel. So, for a period of time in the history, we have a rival kingdom. We have the kingdom of Israel and we have the kingdom of Judah. We have the northern kingdom and we have the southern kingdom. Look at what happens in verse 11. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Seven years and six months. David is a patient man. Extremely patient. He doesn't run ahead of God. He just, he just waits on the Lord and lets God do it. Let's let God do what he's supposed to do. Now, the rest of the chapter 2 describes a battle that takes place between the forces of Abner and the forces of Joab, the commander of David's army. And they, they get into this long, drawn-out battle. And basically, the forces of Joab defeat the forces of Abner. And Abner is on the run. And the forces of Joab, Joab and his brothers, are chasing after Abner. And Joab's younger brother, who's fleet of foot, is about to gain on Abner. And when Abner realizes he's about to be overtaken, he turns around and he drives a spear through Joab's brother. And he kills him on the spot. Everybody in Judah knows who did it. All the men of Joab know that Abner killed the brother of Joab, except Joab. Joab does not get the news. He doesn't get the report. So, uh, they're still pursuing him, and finally, Saul and Joab come to an agreement. We'll stop chasing after you, and, and you know, we'll stop fighting with you. You go to your house and, and be at peace, and we'll go to our house and be at peace. So, they retreat. Joab still doesn't know his brother's dead. So, then a count of the bodies are taken, and Joab finally realizes that his brother has been killed, and Joab is hot. He is in he's infuriated. He has murder on his heart. He is going to get revenge for what Abner did. Now, all of that serves as a background to what is about to happen between Abner and David. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. David is consolidating his power. He's it's taking him a little longer than he might have envisioned, but he's beginning to pull everybody together, and he's getting stronger. And even though the house of Saul grows weaker, notice what happens in verse 6. 
Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. So even though the house of Saul is getting weaker, Abner is getting stronger with more influence, more power, more authority in the house of Israel, in the house of Saul. He's really the power behind the throne. This is just like politics today. It's, it's just like we're reading it. It's the people underneath that are really the power players. The other people are just the, the, the spokesmen or just the, 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 the upfront people. This is what's happening in this. Abner finally begins to realize, he goes, I am not going to be able to defeat, defeat David. He said, the best thing I can do is come to an agreement with David. I'll make a treaty with David. I'll make a, a pact with David. So he sends a message to David. And he says, if you will make an agreement with me, then all Israel will come over to you. Now, why would David make an agreement with an enemy? Why would David make an agreement with Abner? Abner had been chasing David around the wilderness for 20 years trying to kill him. Now he set up a rival kingdom to David trying to, to rule in David's place. Why in the world would David ever enter into an agreement with Abner? There's none. There's no reason he should have entered into an agreement except for this. He wanted to show mercy just like God had shown him mercy. He wanted to offer forgiveness just like God had offered him forgiveness. You see, David's growing in his ability to be a godly leader. So David makes an, an agreement with Abner. He's a forgiving man. But he says, if I'm going to do this, then there's something you need to do for me. You need to bring Michael, my wife, back to me. I know David's already got two. We're not going to address that, okay? You know, I, I don't know how it is. A man can't serve two masters. I haven't figured it out yet. But So he's got, he's got two. But if you remember anything about Michael, Michael was awarded to David by Saul when David killed Goliath. That was his prize. So he said, you'll be part of my family. So David wants Michael back. But here's what David said. He also knows of Michael back. David is a legitimate son-in-law of Saul, which gives him rightful heir as the throne. This is what's taking place. And so Abner agrees. He says, okay, I'll do that. But Abner does more than, than restore Michael to David. He rallies the elders of Israel in support of David. Look at verses 17 and 18. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, for some time you've wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And then verse 19 says that he singles out the tribe of Benjamin. He's talking to all of Israel, but he singles out Benjamin. Why does he single out the tribe of Benjamin? Because Saul is a native son of Benjamin. So he said, I've really got to get the Benjaminites on, on, on board because they're going to be loyal to Saul and to Saul's family. So he singles him out in that situation. Abner is a master. He's a master uh, politician behind the scenes. After everything was done, Abner reported to David what he'd done. And David enters into the peace treaty with Abner. 
Verse 20 says that David throws a party and he invites Abner to the party and he, and he gives Abner a, a place of respect and, and he praises Abner. And Abner at the party says, asks David, let me make arrangements so that, that you can be anointed king by the people of Israel. And, and verse 21, and, and then David sends him away to make the agreement. Go ahead and do that and we'll get this thing done. So, so David offers forgiveness to Abner in words and in actions. He didn't just talk about forgiveness. He demonstrates it by what he does. And that is the essence of godly leadership. Godly leadership is not just words. It is actions. It's things you do in reality. David illustrates exactly what Jesus teaches us in the New Testament. What he tell us is that we are to forgive as what? As Christ has forgiven us, as God has forgiven us. That's exactly what we are supposed to do. How many of you have been forgiven by Jesus? Don't raise your hand. Been forgiven by Jesus, guess what? Then you are to be a forgiver. Because Jesus forgave you much more than you'll ever forgive another person. We are to be demonstrators of forgiveness. What else did Jesus say? Love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Is David not exemplifying this in his life? Long before Jesus taught those truths, David was demonstrating those truths in his life. David knew that if he harbored anger or if he harbored resentment, it would harm the unity of the people. It would harm the cohesiveness of the fellowship. David knew there was something bigger at stake. There's something bigger at stake than when David was hurt or David's pride was hurt. He said the kingdom of God was at stake. He said the kingdom of Israel was at stake. There's something bigger out there than David's feelings. There's something bigger out there than that was going on. David recognized a truth. He served a greater mission than his own. And his mission was to lead Israel to be a godly nation that God would use to draw people to them and to him. David knew this. And the same thing is true of you and me, my friends. There is more going on in this world than you being made, than, than being right with another person. The kingdom of God is at stake. We serve a greater mission. And so we've got to learn to show forgiveness. We've got to learn to show acceptance, even from those individuals who, who hurt you and, 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 and harm you and they treat you bad. You've got to be able to show forgiveness and mercy and grace. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at stake. There's something bigger going on in the world around us. We have to be able to do this. So David offers forgiveness. And he proves himself a godly leader, but it does not end there. I wish it ended there. Don't you wish it ended there? But it doesn't end there. Remember I told you about Joab? Joab hears about this agreement. He is hot. He has murder on his heart. He goes ballistic on David. So he storms into the Oval Office. Uh, I don't know if they had an Oval Office, but he storms into the Oval Office and he says, what have you done? What have you done? Why did you let Abner escape? He came here to, to spy on you. He came in here to deceive you. He's saying he's a spy and he's just here to trick you. He is hot 
he's not happy. So Joab decides to take things into his own hands. Look at verse 26 of the passage. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Key phrase, but David did not know it. Without David's knowledge, Joab murders Abner, murders him. David wasn't aware of it. David finds out what Joab did. His commander of his army has killed the commander of the army of Israel. David is recognized, and the suspicion is that David's involved in a conspiracy. He's tricked Abner and killed Abner in response. So David does something that so few leaders do today. I don't want to shock you. David tells the truth. <laughs> David tells the truth. That leads to the fourth, the fourth principle. To become a godly leader, always tell the truth. Always tell the truth. Wouldn't it be great today if our leaders just told us the truth? Uh, I, I'm getting now, I don't even know what the truth is anymore. It's amazing to me how dumb some leaders think people are today. David just tells the truth. Look at verses 28 and 29. David heard about this. He said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. You notice what David does? He said, I didn't do it. Joab did it. Listen, truth has no limitations, folks. Truth is truth regardless of who it involves. Truth is always truth. David acknowledges that Joab, his friend, his confidant, his loyal follower, one of his greatest warriors, the brother of one of his other greatest warriors, he said, he's the one that did it. Listen, party affiliation meant nothing when the truth was at stake. They didn't care if they were Israelite or Judite. They didn't care. All that they mattered was the truth. Not only did David tell the truth, but he issues a national day of mourning for, Saul, for Abner. He did the same thing for Saul, but he's doing this, doing this for Abner. He calls Abner a, 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 a prince, and he calls him a great man in Israel. He said he was a, he, he praises Abner. And then David leads the nation in mourning. And he calls for a national fast in observance of Abner, and David leads the fast. And then David does something, something else. He follows the funeral procession out in reverence to Abner, the king following out Abner. Look what happens in verse 36. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. They're happy with David. Because of all that David did. David begins to find favor in the people for all the right reasons. It is possible to, find, uh, uh, to gain the favor of people for the wrong reasons. David gains the favor of the people for the right reasons. David is becoming a godly leader. He's making decisions 
and gaining the favor of the people for the right reasons. I remember years ago, I served at a church and uh, I got accused of misappropriating church funds by using the church credit card. Now, I'm not gonna drag the story out. Let me just cut to the chase and tell you what happened. Uh, I was about to take a, a, a vacation and I, I called to, to get my, I already had my room reserved, and I called there to add on another day, and I wanted to get some tickets to some of the attractions in the area. They said, we can get them to you for 50, 50% off, and we need to do it today. Uh, and so uh, I think it's paying for, I was paying for my hotel and the attractions. I had the money in my checking account, okay? I had the money on my debit card. I had the money. They didn't accept the debit card. But I had to do it that day, I would lose the, you know, I, I would lose, you know, like $200 because that's how much I was saving. So I said, I'll use the church credit card, I'll pay for it, and then I'll refund the church. Innocent, you know, probably shouldn't have done it, but it was innocent. I wasn't doing it to default anybody. So, I, and I made sure that when the bill came in, it's exactly what was quoted because I didn't want to pay something that was, so it came in, I wrote a check, paid it off. Well, word got out, pastors misappropriating funds, pastors using the church credit card the wrong way. I said, okay. After church, after worship, I got up and I read a letter. And I read a letter explaining in detail exactly what I did, <clears throat> making no accusations of anyone. I told them this is what I did. At the end of the service, some guy came up to me. I do not know who this person was. I'd never seen him in my life. Never saw him again. He came to me after he shook my hand. He said, I want you to know that's the great, this is his words, not mine. That's the greatest example of leadership I've ever seen. Now, listen, guys, I don't tell you that to toot my own horn, okay? Because I make enough mistakes, uh, you know, that uh, I don't have to do that. What I'm trying to tell you, telling the truth always is the best result. Amen. Always tell the truth. People will respect you for telling the truth. Plus, you don't have to remember the lie you told and tell another lie to cover up the lie that you're trying to tell. Always tell the truth. You cannot go wrong telling the truth. We need godly leaders that tell the truth. Always telling the truth in love. But speak the truth not just in words, but leaders that will speak the truth in their actions as well. David was a man after God's own heart. He's far from perfect. He, he's not the ideal individual. But David has attributes that we can learn that will help us to develop a heart for God. And listen, God wants you to provide godly leadership, whether that's in your, in your family, in your, in, your, in your business, in your neighborhood, in your church. God wants you to provide godly leadership. You don't have a choice, folks. You are a child of the king. And as a child of a king comes at that responsibility and obligation, we have a responsibility the world needs to know what godly people look at. Will you be the one that provides that leadership? Will you be the one that provides godly leadership and your sphere of influence? Because I'm telling you, if you would do that, God will do something amazing in your life and in the life of those around you. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. Kip's going to come and lead us. Cassie and Marilyn are going to come and play. I'm going to be here at the front. And I'm not for sure how, how you would want to deal with this in, in your own life. 
But maybe, maybe God has called and said, hey, you know, you got to get right. You know, you, you got to step up the plate. You, you can't just sit on, the, sit on the side and just hope nobody notices you. You better hope that people do notice you and that you can point them to Christ. That's what you should be. So we're going to have a time of invitation. However God is speaking to you, maybe you want somebody to pray with you. Maybe you some, want somebody just to, uh, to give you some advice. Maybe you want to say, I want to be a part of this church. I want to know what it's like to be, be a follower of Christ. We can help with that. Uh, Marcy's going to come. Josh is going to make his way down here. We'll be here for you if you want to talk with one of us. Would you stand with me?